Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Before we get into our show, we'd like to ask you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. And today I'm speaking with legendary Cree singer-songwriter Buffy St. Marie about her new doc on her life entitled, Buffy St. Marie, Carry It On. Let's hear a clip. She was always way ahead of the game. She knew she had a gift, and she was not afraid to share it, show it, be proud of it. When she played, it was hers. The film traces the life and career of Buffy St. Marie from her rise in the folk music scene to her activism for indigenous people. She remains the only indigenous person to win an Oscar, which is crazy. And she got it for co-writing the hit song, Up Where We Belong. All right, Nam, you got to interview Buffy for the agenda. Uh, what was that like? First, before I do, the, I answer your question. Can I do? Of course. Up where we belong. <laughs> you want to be Jennifer Warrens? I'll be Joe Cocker. <laughs> oh my gosh! When I saw the documentary, and I'm like, she had a role in this. I had no idea. Um, yeah, I spoke to Buffy for the agenda, and it was hard to uh, remain cool, calm, and collected. She was on Zoom. She was in. Uh, she wasn't able to come into the studio, but she was terrific. She gave so much of herself. And she was informative. She was fun. And then we both had blue manicures because I'm a dork. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God, you have blue manicure. But it was really interesting to watch the doc and to see how many firsts she was a part of. Uh, We hear the word representation because it's part of our lexicon now. But back then it wasn't. She was just doing her thing. Like when one door closed, she tried to do something else. Um, The work that she did on Sesame Street she was the first woman to breastfeed on national television. Yeah. She told me that it actually people didn't really respond or care. But now someone does it and social media has a meltdown over it. So um, it was really cool to speak to her. Yeah, I was, I was to be honest, a little intimidated just because, um, you know, when you talk to someone like her, I mean, you realize you're, you're also talking to someone who is a figure of history. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, this is a woman who was part of probably the greatest cultural explosion of the 20th century in the 1960s, you know, and all the people that she worked with or was... Um, her contemporaries. Her contemporaries. Right? Like, it's just insane that, you know, you would... And, there, and you'll see this in the doc, like, who she was photographed with and who was introducing her to record labels. I mean, it's just in- incredible that this woman uh, has done and, and contributed. And her music is insane. It's yeah. so. I mean, I'm not a big folk fan. I'm not, I'll be honest. But when I heard her do uh, The Circle Game, which I think is a Joni Mitchell song. She talks about that in our interview. I was just like, "Oh my God, this is Joni, this is Buffy St. Marie. She's incredible. She's such a good singer." And like, I it just it's it's awesome when you can discover new like old music, but like, mm-hmm. and it's new to you in a way. And, you know, it be, it's it's sort of fresh. Yeah, I don't know if you have ever had that feeling before, of but course. It's, yeah, yeah. And you're like, "Why didn't I know this before?" Exactly. Um, I you know she's one of the probably the the only a few people maybe the only person who ever said no to Elvis Presley. Yeah, her music, her um, she told me when I spoke to her that she's a songwriter first, and she's also an educator. She's very generous in her education uh, uh, of what's happened to Indigenous people on Turtle Island, and her smile. The minute like she smiles, you're just like, "Oh, I've known you for a long time." even though 
we just met, right? She just has that ability of putting people at ease. And you just want to talk to her more, learn from her more. Um, yeah, so it's really great that she, you had a chance to talk to her as well. Yeah, I think she said no to Elvis in terms of giving him the publishing rights because she had made some mistakes in her career, uh, giving the publishing away to some of her songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, she didn't want to make that mistake again. She learned from her lesson. And uh, yeah, we get into all of that. And let's just let's not keep the public waiting any longer. Here it is. Here's my conversation with Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I have to start with a, a very basic question. What made you agree to have your story told as a documentary? Oh, the question should be another documentary. <laughs> <'Cause there's laughs> How many documentaries have there been? Well, Joan Prost did a documentary on me, I think in, gosh, I forget the year, 2012, I think. But uh, Blair Stonechild, prior to that, had written a biography about me. Blair Stonechild's uh, First Nations University. Uh, head of Native Studies. And the reason why I had said yes to him in the first place, when I had said no to all the regular rock and roll biographers who want to do everybody, is because I knew that he knew um, the area where I come from, I think. <laughs> and he also spoke Cree, and he knew he I knew that he would have entree to people that other professional journalists would not have. So then Andrea Warner... Um, she wrote a second biography about me called, um, what do you call the authorized biography? <laughs> and she's in the dock. She's in the dock. And when Andrew Munger from White Pine came and, you know, asked about doing a documentary, I didn't really want to do one because I didn't think it'd be very much fun for me having done all that before. Um, and I, I don't know, I feel as though many documentaries are just talking heads and kind of boring. So <laughs> I told Andrew, Number one, if I were to do another documentary, I would want Andrea to be the writer because she really kind of delved into things that, you know, she'd already done the work, but there was still a lot more to discuss if they were to use Andrea. So I didn't want to start from scratch and just rehash my greatest hits and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I said yes, because uh, uh, they agreed that uh, to, to some of the things that actually we both wanted. They loved the idea of Andrea being the writer. Madison Thomas, our director, you know, she's uh, half indigenous, half non-indigenous. Uh, and it just and eventually Eagle Vision uh, was brought on board as well. So. So, yeah, it turned out to be quite a creative project for me, too, which is what I was hoping for. Well, I'm not sure if previous docs have touched on this, but the biggest revelation to me, at least, uh, was that your music was actually blacklisted by the U.S. government. They they urged radio stations to not play your music, and you didn't have any idea that this was going on. Uh, why why were they afraid of you? Well, I, I have to correct you. I mean, that is the way that uh, it, it, it's in the media that the U.S. government blacklisted me, which, of course, is impossible. That would take an act of Congress. The way that it's done is a lot sleazier. Hmm. Lyndon Johnson administration, Democrats, and then Richard Nixon administration, Republicans, a couple of guys from their administration go in the back room and they make nasty phone calls to the media and to the networks. You know, this person is under surveillance. So really, the U.S. government had nothing to do with it. So it, it never made me mad at America because an administration is just a bunch of guys who get elected for a few years. And then they and then they go away and you get somebody else. In my case, it was somebody just as bad from the other side of the street. So, yes, you are correct, though. Although it wasn't the government blacklisting me, I was under FBI surveillance. Oh, I didn't know it for over 20 years. 
Now we get into the U.S. government and both administrations, certain guys in those administrations just plain not wanting Indians or anybody else wanting to interrupt their control of all available land and natural resources. So it's not that, oh, Buffy sang Universal Soldier and everybody got mad. That's not what it is. No. Bob Dylan had already written what? Blowing in the wind. And, you know, there were other protest songs around. No, it was about Native American issues. It was about... Um, you know, getting in the way of oil companies and others who sponsor um, administrations um, such as Johnson and Nixon and many others. So it's business getting in the way of people who are speaking truth to things that need to be changed. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been vocal about indigenous issues. There's a great clip of you debating this U.S. congressman about a bill that would abolish treaties I'm thinking of also your work on raising awareness on missing and murdered indigenous women. Do you consider yourself an activist first and then an artist? Do you consider yourself an artist first and then an activist? Or is it, which takes, I guess, priority for you? <laughs> you know, throughout the day, I'm one and then I'm the other and I'm one and then I'm and the other. You know, I write songs. I write, I, the, only, the only money I've ever made is because of writing love songs that anybody can relate to, you know, until it's time for you to go and up where we belong. Universal Soldier, I didn't make money on. Um, now that the buffalo is gone, you know, who's, you don't make any money on that. So, um, um, no, in, in my day, if I'm if I'm think if I'm thinking about something, I might write a song about it doesn't matter what it's about. And yet as a person with eyes and as an artist with airplane tickets that not only get me to Stockholm and Oslo, but then on my time off, I get to go, you know, way up north, 30 degrees above the Arctic Circle and play with and among and learn from and teach with Sami people, other indigenous people. So I've just had a really interesting life, partly because I never did get famous like Madonna and Michael Jackson, right? Mm. But the good part of that is that I've seen parts of the world that they probably have never seen and wouldn't even have an interest in. So I've had a double education. I've had a tremendous university education, not only the University of Massachusetts, but all the other universities that I've been involved with. But then, see, the other side of it is I have had an indigenous education that other indigenous people are sharing more and more now. Um, but travel has really been um, key in who I am. And I carry that mission inside me all the time just to make things better, whatever it's about. It doesn't have to be about indigenous people. It doesn't have to be anti-war. It can be about feeling better. It can it can be about taking care of the environment. It can be about feeling good about yourself. So that's my mission. My mission isn't to, um, you know, stick it to the white man. <laughs> you know, no, it never has been that. It's always been, um, you know, keeping your, no your nose on the joy trail. <laughs> And, and, you know, there's a there's a thing that I, I really hoped would make it into the documentary that um, Madison Thomas and uh, Andrea uh, wrote about me. And the, the line comes from a song I wrote. It says, some will tell you what you really want ain't on the menu. Don't believe them. Cook it up yourself and then prepare to serve them. See how that works? Cook it up yourself. And then prepare to serve them, not cook it up yourself and, you know, make a rock snowball and throw it at them. No, 
No, no. The way you make the world better is when you find out something terrible that somebody did, you find a way to work around it, to 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 fix the bigger situation, to turn doodle into shinola, I guess is what I'm saying. And you can do that. A lot of people do that every day, only they don't usually have a platform or somebody making a documentary about them. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in the film that you you said there were two things that you were told as a child that should have ruined you, that you couldn't be a musician because you didn't read music mm-hmm. and that you weren't an Indian because there weren't any left. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder how you how you were resilient through that. Well, in the first place, that was from the time I was really little, that was such an obvious crock. I mean, how could I believe that? Okay, I would go to school and I was shunned and shamed in music class because I couldn't read the notes. And I found out as an adult, I'm dyslexic in that kind of symbology. It's, it's just real simple. But, at, okay, so I would be shunned and shamed. I couldn't pass the, the music classes. I couldn't be in band. I couldn't be in chorus, no, because I couldn't read music. And then I'd go home and I'd sit down at the piano and I'd play anything I want, anything I heard on the radio. I could play, you know, fake Bach and fake Mozart or, <laughs> or, or Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra or, you know, anything that I heard I could play. And so how could I believe somebody telling me that I couldn't be a musician? See how clear that is? And on the other hand, my teachers, they didn't know anything about indigenous people. You know, they, oh, there aren't any more Indians. Oh, there may be a few over there in, you know, Montana or somewhere, but there aren't any around here. So you must be mistaken. So I found out very young that sometimes grownups are wrong. And I've carried with that with me all my life. I mean, I can walk into parliament and I can smell BS the same as anybody else can. Right. We all you, you have to preserve your sense of intelligence and common sense and, and believing your own eyes when you see something. How can they tell me I can't be a musician? They must be wrong. And if you realize that sometimes the world is wrong and you, even if you're a child, sometimes you are right. You realize you, you come up with a sense of forgiveness, I think, because as a teacher, the one thing that I know is that you don't get mad at people for not knowing And people did not know. Those teachers didn't know that I was a natural musician. They had no idea. I mean, their ears were plugged with what their teachers had told them. And the same thing with Indigenous stuff, too. So I don't get mad at at, at non-Indigenous people for not knowing. None of us have been told. Many Indigenous people, we're only finding out about the doctrine of discovery for the first time ourselves. So instead of getting mad, I just try to come up with little um, positive corrections when I hear somebody say something that's not quite right on. But I don't spend any mental energy being mad at people. From a real young age, I was dealing with other people's ignorance about things I really cared about. People I loved who just didn't know the facts about indigenous people or natural musicians. I knew things intimately from daily experience that never even crossed their minds. Things like that probably should have ruined me, but they did not. Because I knew so definitely that the world sometimes is either wrong or they're not there yet. We see that in the film too. There's a there's a scene of you at a, at a concert, one of your concerts, and I think uh, you have a, a dress on the stage, a red dress, and someone shouts out, "Hey, Buffy, what's that dress for?" And I think a few, few people in the audience are like, "Oh, hey, buddy, you know, learn 
the history or something like that. But you you didn't react that way. You you said I'm a teacher, and you and you explain what the red dress is. I thought that was very admirable. Yeah, the, the red dress uh, uh, is um, it's a, it's it's honoring the families of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls who are, you know, still searching for our relatives. It, it, it started as an art project. Um, so um, yeah, so I just don't. <laughs> What, when I found out that I'd been blacklisted by two U.S. government administrations, instead of getting mad at that or having it break my heart, I just kept on writing and kept on painting and raised my son and um, just kept on having a great life. And you were on Sesame Street, too. I mean, it's just astonishing that they would think, you know, this woman who's nursing for the first time on television is a threat to anybody. I just it's astonishing. Well, uh, you know, that is a funny thing about um, nursing my son on Sesame Street. A lot of people these days say, oh, that must have been so controversial, but it wasn't. It wasn't controversial at all at the time. It is now. So go figure. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that era of music that you were a part of, you know, you mentioned Bob Dylan earlier. I'm obviously Joni Mitchell was a huge uh, part of that scene and she's in the film. Did it ever feel like you were in competition with each other? Like, I guess, how did you like, how was it like, like to break through in that, in that very like artistic period of, of music in the sixties? Uh, well, Oh, I want to say three things at once. Um, uh, <laughs> one, uh, I didn't know either Joni or Bob very well. I was really isolated and you're right, I did. I carried Joni's tape around for months and months trying to get people to listen to Joni Mitchell and nobody wanted to hear her. We don't want to hear about your Canadian friend from Scratch Around or wherever, you know, and they were even <laughs> rude about it. I mean, you can't, Canadians have no idea how awful it can be in the U.S. They're not quite sure about Canada, our neighbor to the north. So um, we didn't know each other well, but eventually um, a junior agent in in my agent's office said, yeah, I'll go down and listen to your friend. And that was Elliot Roberts. And he and Joni made a huge, huge career together with the help of David Geffen, of course. And Bob Dylan, too. He was nice to me. You know, he told me when he first heard me, he, he liked my music. He was a fan. And but we didn't know each other really well. Um, but he sent me over to the Gaslight. And that's kind of where I got my start in singing uh at coffee houses. But the way the scene was, no, neither of those people ever did me a favor. <laughs> no, they did not. No, never. No, it's not how it was. Because let me tell you, um, if you weren't part of the management stables, you know, it, it was like you, we were horses. <laughs> if you weren't part of, you know, Albert Grossman or Manny Greenhill or Harold Leventhal or David Geffen or any of those big time sharky managers, then you were out of the picture. So I wasn't hanging out with those guys. They they weren't, you know, all of the big protest, um, uh, civil rights movement, um, big photo ops. And they. I was never invited. And a lot of that was just bought and paid for, you know. It was very hard for people to break in. And people didn't usually do any favors. People from that time are still amazed that, uh, that I... Uh, brought Joni into the circle because you didn't do favors for another artist. No, you know, but I was a one-off. I was a, I was a one girl band, you know, just me and my guitar and riding around on a bus a lot of the time. Um, I didn't have a big management agent kind of deal helping me or protecting me. So it was, it was, as it turned out to be, you heard a lot about certain artists and you heard very little about other artists. And this kid low in a show. 
There were many um, artists called folk singers who were doing different things. Odetta, Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan was still playing in the village. And it was all mixed up and it was so exciting. I mean, for a while you heard about Phil Oaks, Tom Paxton, uh, um, Lisa Kimbrell, um, Hoyt Axton, uh, Len Chandler. There were a lot of people who were just playing ditched because the big managers simply took all the column space and you didn't hear about the rest of us anymore. You know, it was all Peter, Paul and Mary time and, you know, the mamas and the papas and things changed from that innocent, youthful, um, underage audience in coffee houses to big time alcohol, bars, coke, you know, lots of drugs. And it turned into a different kind of scene. And you didn't want to be a part of that scene. Oh, I wasn't even invited. Would you have gone if you were? Oh, probably, probably. But they didn't know where the money came out for me. No, managers didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know. They just didn't know. And um, also, as a woman, you were expected to treat businessmen in a certain way that um, I didn't quite know how to do that. <laughs> so I didn't do that. Did it ever frustrate you when songs of yours would uh, be covered by artists and they would get the credit? I'm thinking like... Donovan, for example, doing uh, Universal Soldier. Oh, no, I was very glad that you, that Donovan did Universal Soldier. I just wanted that message to get out. Glenn Campbell also had recorded it. Uh, there was uh, uh, there were a lot of people who recorded it. Only the thing about Donovan is that somehow everybody thought Donovan wrote it. And Donovan was not saying that he didn't. <laughs> that's recently. the thing. That's why I, that's why I ask <laughs> no, <laughs> if it was frustrating. I, I, don't, I don't think that he ever... I don't know. He's a he's a songwriter himself, and he writes all of his own songs except for two: Codine, which I wrote, Universal Soldier, which I wrote. So it would be very easy for journalists to skip over the part where somebody else wrote those two songs. That's you know, I don't really don't want to be in a fight with anybody. So I'm glad that he sang the songs. I'm glad his audience got to hear them. But those things do happen. It, not usually because of the artist. Usually because of the business people behind the artist, just trying to give a little helpful push. You know, and they're not really thinking about who's getting hurt. Really, I don't think it's intentional. It's just business. And that's what we really need to change in this world. This isn't about music, Colin. This is about business. This is about business people just trying to get away with, you know, take as much as you can get and give the least you can. And it's a very old story. This isn't new. And it affects everything. Do you think it's better now? I mean, I'm thinking of these artists who, who emerge on TikTok and YouTube and all these, you know, like these different platforms that people have to like get their music out. I think it's great that they have those platforms. I think it's terrific. And, you know, as to, you know, okay, so maybe you watch TikTok, if you watch TikTok for an hour, you find some things that you really like, and then you say, oh, that's awful. Wish I'd never seen it. <laughs> but that's the human race. That's who we are. You know, that's who we are. Where it gets really unfair is when the people in the record companies or, you know, people in big business in the movie industry, when they just decide that they're going to do it their own way and exclude the artists somehow, it, it just gets very hard for artists. Yeah. You mentioned uh, writing love songs earlier, and I have to ask about one of your big ones, Up Where We Belong, because it's one of my favorites. Uh, you co-wrote that for the film An Officer and a Gentleman, and you won an Academy Award. And I, I've always wanted to know, why didn't you sing on the song for the film? 
Oh, God. Um, that's the first time anybody ever asked me that. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, no. If you write a song for a movie, number one, they get, they get the publishing. So what you get, you get a statue. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, I was never considered to sing for that. And Jennifer Warrens and Joe Cocker, I could not top that in a million years. I'm just thrilled that they did. And I love what they did. They did it. I mean, I recorded it too later on. You know, I recorded it many years later on an album called Up Where We Belong. <laughs> it's very good. I love it. Well, it's very sweet and it's a very songwritery version. But, you know, the big pop hit. Oh, no, it's I, I, I wouldn't change a minute of that. <laughs> I'm very grateful. <laughs> Well, we have to let you go, but I have to ask, because at the end of the film, we hear a lot of people talk about your legacy. I don't know if you spend a lot of time thinking about your legacy, but actually, do you think about your legacy? What, what would your legacy be? be? No, 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 no. I don't I don't know where that thinking comes from. I don't know. That's some some culture I don't belong to. But uh, <laughs> what I, who I am right now is a, definitely an extension of who I was just as a little kid. Some will tell you what you really want ain't on the menu. Don't believe them. <laughs> Cook it up yourself. That's what I do. And then prepare to serve them. And so I've given a whole lot of um, art and music and stuff that I happen to like. I've shared it with other people, you know, either privately or through media. And it's it's all really, really wonderful. You know, some of it has become hits. Some of it hasn't. Um, some of it uh, may still, I mean, I've got a huge catalog, most of it unexplored. So I think that probably, um, you know, after I'm in the next world, I think probably people are going to rediscover songs that, um, you know, when you have a hit on an album, it's kind of the rest of the album kind of gets overshadowed. Well, I'm 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 discovering. I I heard the Circle Game on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I thought that was awesome. I, I love that song. <laughs> oh, that's a Joni song, you know. Oh, she wrote it. It's, yeah, no, that was me oh. trying to put Joni on the map. See? Oh, that's, okay. That's what I mean. Nobody wanted to hear Joni cook it up yourself, so I recorded her song and then prepared to serve the gosh darn world who just doesn't know yet. The world is young. The world can learn. Each one of us can contribute some little thing to making the world better every day. So just do it. Well said. Buffy, thank you so much for joining me today on On Docs. This was great. Okay, Colin. See you next time. And that's the podcast. Buffy St. Marie, Carry It On is now streaming on Crave. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. This episode was produced by yours truly with editing by Matthew O'Mara. Special thanks to our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell. Our manager for podcasts is Shari Artajvidi, and our executive producer for digital is Lori Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. Hold up. 